morning. I'd invite you to make your way in this morning if you're out in the foyer. As we get started this morning, just one thing to, to note, through a confluence of events and travel and everything else, like all three people who would normally lead us in worship this morning are out of town for various reasons, and so we're thankful that we have stuff we recorded during lockdown and during COVID that we can watch, and like one of the themes of like the sermon this morning is that like we can express true faithfulness in a variety of formats, right? and so we're going to sing together through through watching uh, former recordings online, and so I'd invite you to stand and sing as the video plays.
You may be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are we're glad that you're here with us. If you came in a little late, you may have missed hearing me say that just through a series of events and travel, like all our normal worship leaders are out of town this week, so that's why we're doing worship on the video, through video this morning, but the good news is right, that those words are no less true that we sing, whether they're mediated through people on the stage in person or through video, right? and so we can still worship and praise God, um, <laughs> regardless of what, um, what format the worship comes through. So we're, we're excited to come together to worship together this morning, we're glad that you're here with us. If you are new or visiting, um, there's a, a connect card in the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out. Um, if there's anything you want to communicate with the church, we'd love to be able to share some information with you about the church if you have any questions. So we'd invite you to fill that out and drop it in uh, the boxes on the back wall on your way out. Those boxes are also where our tithes and offerings uh, can be placed. Um, just a couple things to bring to your attention this morning, first, coming up this Thursday, on the 20th, will be our first Women's Common Ground event of the, of the year. And so we'd invite all the women of the church to come be a part of that. It'll start at 6.30 on Thursday. Then next Sunday, two things that are happening. First, during the worship service, we'll have a, a child dedication. So if you have a child who you'd like to bring before the church to ask the church to come alongside you and raising that child to know and love Jesus, we would invite you to um, sign up for that. And then also following church and Sunday school next Sunday, there will be a, a Pizza with the Pastor event um, where we just Pastor Ian and I will be there for a chance for you to know us better. If you're new and want to know more about us or have any questions about the church, we would love for you to come join us for pizza after the Sunday school hour. If you do plan to come to that, if you could sign up. There's a sign-up sheet on the table downstairs. It would be helpful for us to know, for planning purposes, uh, how much pizza we may need. And so we'd invite you to sign up for that if you plan to come to that event. Finally, one final thing. So in a few minutes, we're going to hear from from Mel and Amy Ellenwood. They are back and visiting us this morning. So they're going to share some of what they're doing in ministry. Um, They'll also be with us during the Sunday school hour. That whole hour will be for them to share more about that. Um, We invite you to come be a part of that Sunday school hour to hear more about what's going on in their ministry. And then on Monday, October 24th, they'll also have an evening where they'll share at the, they'll be at the, at Bill and Lisa Miller's house, and they'll share more of their ministry there during that time as well. So we'd invite you to connect with them this morning, connect with them during that event, and just hear um, more about what's going on in their ministry. We're thankful that they're here with us today. With all that, would you, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are thankful for the chance to come gather together as your people to praise you, to worship you, to have our hearts inclined to what you'd say to us through your word. I pray for us 
all this morning that as we join together in singing, as we join together in hearing your word, as we fellowship together, would our hearts be inclined to see you glorified above all else? Would other concerns, worries, things that fight for our attention, would they be set aside for a moment so we can focus our minds and our hearts on you and praising you, trusting that you will take care of all those other things? Father, we praise you for the work you've done in each one of our lives to bring us here to this place this morning. We pray for those in our church who are struggling this morning, whether it's in physical pain or it's emotional distress or it's because they're fighting sin, pray that you would be with each one of them, that you give them a, an abiding sense of your presence with them, that you are there, you are faithful in the midst of trial and struggle. Father, would all that take place here this morning, would it serve to conform each one of us more and more into the image of Christ and would it serve to move each one of us to honor and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand once again as we continue to sing.
are so thankful that you have given us breath. That each breath we breathe is a gift from you. That it is your breath that is in our lungs. We can use that breath to bring you praise and honor and glory. So let's use our breath well this morning as we go on from here. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, we're excited this morning that Mel and Amy Ellenwood are here with us. For those of you who may not be familiar with them, they were sent out from our church 25 years ago. I won't tell you how old I was when that happened, but... But they're, they're here with us. We're excited to hear from them and all that the work they're doing with Josiah Venture this morning. So, would you guys come on up? Good morning. It is so good to be in the North Woods. Man, it's, uh, we were here when, how old were we? 25, and we were the, we were the, first youth pastor here in the church, and uh, this was a real formative time for Amy and I and her family. And so uh, it, there's no place in the world, even where I grew up, that feels more like home than Three Lakes. Uh, it's, it's awesome to be home, right? Uh, <clears throat> We got called to the mission field to work with Josiah Venture. And I just want to explain, well, before I do that, so for those of you that don't know who we are, Mel and Amy, Ellenwood, uh, we had three kids up here, Hannah, Haley, Noah. Hannah is married, lives in California. Haley is married and has a son, Walter, yes, grandparents. And then Noah and his wife, Jill, uh, have a daughter, Hazel. Again, yes. And they are with Josiah Venture in Montenegro. What's that? Yeah. Did I say she wasn't? Haley's married to Austin. Yes. Um, So it's great. Our kids are all over the world and loving Jesus and walking with him. Uh, But when we got called to Josiah Venture, there was something about it. And, and what it was is uh, we, would take, we would take mission trips with the youth here, different places in the world. And every place, the one thing that I continually saw was that people weren't working with students. Uh, we were building things. We were handing out clothes, food. But there was this whole young generation that was going unreached. And uh, for us, we knew that... God would definitely call somebody to the church to be a youth pastor. And I don't, I didn't, we didn't know how many people he would call to Central and Eastern Europe. So we said yes. And in 1998, we moved over to the Czech Republic. And the, the, the vision is what captured our hearts. And this is, this is the vision of Josiah Venture. A movement of God among the youth of Central and Eastern Europe. It finds its home in the local church, and we want that to transform society, okay? So uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, whenever we think of Europe, usually we think of vacation, wonderful places to visit, but it's a really dark place still. Less than 1% of the population are evangelical believers. 
walking with Jesus. And so we want to start off, and some of you might have seen this video before, but it's one that captures our heart every time, and it's young students talking about how Jesus changed their life. And then we're going to just share a little bit more after the video. Before I met Jesus, I was a very depressed person, and I felt unneeded. Now I'm very grateful to him because he saved my life. I didn't even know that I needed God. He actually, he found me. So before I was a slave to sin, but Jesus has set me free. Christ for me is someone who deeply cares and who really wants to pursue a relationship with me. Jesus is my, uh, my savior. He, he, he's my strength, my courage. He is my God. The way I know that I'm loved is that God sent His only Son, Jesus, to die for us on the cross. And no one else would have ever done it. He loves us perfectly. When I know Jesus, I, I've, got, I got, I've got love. I've got uh, peace. Before Christ in my life, I felt hopeless, and now I feel full of hope and love because of Jesus. He healed my wounds that I even didn't know that exists, and God is awesome. I have, I have changed uh, in the, not only from outside, like I don't drink or smoke anymore, but in the inside, like I just, I'm just happy and Jesus lives inside me. Uh, now I'm, uh, I know who I am. I'm, I really, I know who I am, and uh, I trust in Him with all, with all my life, with all my heart, and uh, I will follow Jesus all my life. Jesus changed 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 my life. <laughs> our, our strategy for reaching these young people, it's through the local church, right? And so our, our mission is equipping young leaders to fulfill Christ's commission, which is what? Matthew 28, go and make disciples, right? Um, <clears throat> through the local church, we want to see the local church, the bride of Christ, radiant. Uh, because of people coming to Jesus and living out their faith and sharing with others. And Amy's going to talk a little bit about some of the ways that's been happening. Well, if you looked at the faces, there were, there were students from Latvia, Albania, Czech, Slovakia, Poland, Ukraine, all in that video, who are first-generation believers and the week before Mel and I flew here, so two weeks ago, we had a, fall, a conference where we trained all of our young leaders throughout Central and Eastern Europe. We had about 400 come from 18 different countries. And most of the, the students that you saw in that video were there with their youth groups because they're leading their youth groups. Two of them are full-time staff with us now serving, um, raising support, which is unheard of in the countries that we serve in, um, so that they can be carriers of the gospel. And it, we're seeing the young Josiahs that we've been praying and asking God for all these years. God is raising them up. And they are becoming part of this movement that God has created 
so that many more can hear. One of the things that we've talked about over the years is that we're serving in a post-Christian culture, and I think you're living in that here in the United States too. But God is actually, even at this, this conference that we just had, and we talked about taking the light to very dark places, um, we believe that, 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 that our hearts need to shift and stop thinking of our cultures as post-Christian, but as pre-revival. That God is setting the stage so that he can move. And when you look at the darkness that we're all living in, I know you see it every day here. We're experiencing it over in Czech um, in and the war that we're facing, uh, that, that our countries are facing over there, it feels so dark. But it says in Isaiah, and I just want to read this real quickly to you. You all know it, I'm sure. But Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken. You all are part of that happening in Central and Eastern Europe. We are seeing a light dawn. And these young people are carrying that light into dark places, and the rod of oppression is being broken. And so thank you. Thank you for all the years that you have stood with us and prayed for us, given to us, and come and served alongside us. We count it such a great privilege to represent you, this church, in Central and Eastern Europe. Thank you. And we're going to talk more in Sunday school. Uh, I know you might have questions about the war in Ukraine and how it's impacting us and Josiah Venture and what God is doing. And there's some incredible things to share with you about how the church has risen up in Ukraine and across Europe. So we would love to see you there. Before you go down, we want to pray for you guys. Are there one or two things in particular you want prayer for? I, I mean... Uh, it's been a doozy of a couple years, like COVID. And then, it, you know, as soon as the war hit, everybody over there is like, what's COVID? And, but it's, it's just taken a toll. It's taken a toll on the team. It's taken a toll on us. And you're just, you're, you're just meeting needs, right? So you can pray for strength for Amy and I, for our team. Uh, there's still this, it, it's weird because after, in the midst of all of this, this is when people are most open to the gospel. So we need his strength to be able to stand in that gap. I would say that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Father, we, we're so thankful for Mel and Amy and the work that they are doing to, to see your kingdom advance in dark, hard places. We thank you for the people who work alongside them and the people you are raising up, the young people you are raising up um, to continue that work and to see your kingdom spread among people who live in dark and challenging circumstances. We thank you that you are faithful, that you continue to work even when to our human eye things seem hopeless and challenging. And we we pray that you would be with Mel and Amy. We pray that you be with others who 
are working with them in that context, that they face the challenges that come with this war and with um, all the other challenges that they face. But you give them strength, give them endurance, give them an abiding sense of your faithfulness and purpose, even in the midst of challenges and hardship. For that you will continue to work, that ultimately all the work they do, all the work their co-workers do would serve to bring you honor, bring you glory, and so that one day you return, you set all things right, we will all join together with people from throughout the world and throughout Central and Eastern Europe because of the work they've done to bring you glory around your throne. Would you work? Would you give them endurance? Would you give them renewed energy for the task? And would your name be glorified? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. As they said again, they'll share more during Sunday school. We'll start up here, in here, at about at 10.45. Right? When it's me up here, sometimes we trickle in and start a little bit later than 10.45. But for them, we'll try to start right at 10.45. So I invite you to be here for that to hear more from them. So in, in 2012, there was this man named Lydell Grant, and he was, he was convicted of murder in, in Texas. So the primary evidence that was used to convict Grant was the eyewitness testimony of six eyewitnesses who identified Grant as the perpetrator. Now that sounds pretty compelling, six eyewitnesses. But it turns out that all six eyewitnesses were wrong. In 2021, there was some new DNA testing done that that cleared Grant and implicated another man in the murder, and that other man subsequently confessed to the murder. All six witnesses are wrong. It would be nice to think, right, that this was some kind of isolated, rare incident. But it's not. There's this project called the Innocence Project, and they're, they're a nonprofit organization, and their task, their goal is to help overturn people who are by, through the use of DNA evidence. Right? So they worked on the Lydell Grant case. They worked on many other cases. And to date, they've, they've overturned 375 convictions using DNA evidence. But what's really startling is that of those 375 cases, in 70% of them, the primary evidence that was used to get the initial false conviction was eyewitness testimony. In a third of cases, right, there were more than two eyewitnesses that all identified or misidentified someone as the perpetrator. And we tend to think of like, eyewitness testimony as like, the end-all, be-all of, of evidence. There's lots of new research that comes out that's showing us that like, humans are actually can be pretty bad at identifying things. Right? And they can misidentify things pretty easily. Like one of the primary reasons this happens is because people have preconceived notions of what they're supposed to identify. For example, there's this one study where the subjects of the study were shown a video that showed a small red car driving and then hitting a pedestrian. So some of the subjects then were asked leading questions about the video they saw after they had watched it. So, for example, they were asked questions like, how fast was the car traveling when it 
past the yield sign. But that question was actually designed to be misleading. Because in the original video, there was no yield sign. There was a, a stop sign. And so later, subjects were shown a pair of a pair of slides, a pair of still from that video. And one of the slides was the the still from the original video that contained the stop sign. Then the other still they were shown was a, a slide that contained the same picture but with a yield sign in place of the stop sign. And then the people were asked, like, which slide matches with what you saw when you watched the video? And the subjects who have been asked about the yield sign were likely to pick the slide that showed the yield sign, even though they never saw that in the original video. So in other words, that, that, inf- that misinformation, that, that leading question, led them to a false expectation and to a misidentification of what they saw. So there's this false expectation, this false picture of what something's going to be like that leads to a misidentification. And we see throughout the Gospel of Luke right, that a false expectation leads to a misidentification of the Messiah. Right? That's the heart of the reason why Jesus is having all these conflicts with religious leaders. They had preconceived notions of what the Messiah would be like. And Jesus didn't fit those, and so they misidentified him. They didn't think he was actually the Messiah. This is especially ironic, right? Because these are the, the religious leaders of Israel. If anyone should be able to properly identify the Messiah, it was them. They should know what the Messiah is going to be like. They were the leaders, right? And they, they loved to be praised for their spirituality. They loved to be recognized for how holy they were. And yet they still couldn't identify the Messiah. So what we see in this passage this morning, we're going to Luke chapter 20, looking at verses 41 through 47. What they see in this passage is that like, outward spirituality, which the religious leaders had in abundance, is of no value if you don't rightly identify the Messiah. Right? The religious leaders, they were all about looking holy, looking spiritual. They wanted people to look at them and praise them for their holiness. And yet, they refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And that kind of caused Jesus, at the very end of today's passage, to say this. He could have said, but because they wanted to look holy, but didn't understand me as the Messiah, he says, these men will be punished most severely. All their outward spirituality is worthless to them because they failed to identify Jesus as the Messiah. So we'll get to the actual passage in a minute. But before we get there, I just want to remind us all that's happened in Luke chapter 20 up until this point. It's one of the dangers in in going through a a book of the Bible, section by section, like we have been with Luke, that we can kind of lose some of the context of things that are happening. We can lose sight of the bigger picture. And so throughout Luke chapter 20, there's these series of interactions. They're all between Jesus and the religious leaders, they often involve Jesus or the religious leaders asking Jesus a question, and they end up leaving. And then Jesus responds, and it leaves the, the religious leader paralyzed or unable to answer or act. 
And see, these interactions that happen throughout Luke 20 reveal that the religious leaders had a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Messiah was going to be like. I'm just want to look at a few of these misunderstandings. So first, we saw, in the first part of Luke chapter 20, we saw the first misunderstanding, which was a misunderstanding of authority. Right? So in, early in chapter Luke, in chapter 20 of Luke, right, the religious leaders say to Jesus, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? And in asking that question, what the religious leaders were really saying to Jesus was, like, we don't believe you have the authority. We don't believe you're able to do these things. You, should, you can really do these things. You can, only the Messiah can do these things. And you don't fit our expectations of the Messiah. So you can't do these things because you're not him. But then Jesus replied to them by asking them the question about whether John's baptism is from heaven or of human origin. Right? And the religious leaders, they realize they're trapped until they say, well, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we, we don't know where it was from. So they're left paralyzed. They're left unable to answer Jesus. And we see a second misunderstanding in the next passage, and it's a misunderstanding of longevity. And in particular, the, the religious leaders misunderstood the longevity of Israel's status as God's specially chosen people. They assumed that Israel would remain God's specially chosen people until the Messiah came. And then the Messiah would come and he would lead a military conflict and he would drive out Rome and he would enthrone himself as the king over Israel, a purified Israel where Rome is driven out. Like they thought that it would restore their status as God's special people for all time. That was their picture of the Messiah. But then Jesus shows up and he, he tells this parable in which he highlights how Israel has continually rejected the prophets of God. And because of that, God's going to take away his promise. He's going to give it to the Gentiles. Jesus tells that parable to tell them that right, despite what they expected, the Messiah was not going to be a, a militant Messiah. Like he would not be a Messiah for the Jews only. That the Jews' status, that God's specially chosen people, was, was not actually eternal, but it would be taken away and given to others. But the religious leaders, they misunderstood the longevity of Israel's status. And after Jesus finishes telling that story, we read this. The teachers of the law and the chief priests, they looked for a way to arrest him immediately, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. So again, they're, they're paralyzed. They wanted to act. They wanted to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't because they were afraid of the people. The third misunderstanding then is the, the misunderstanding of civility. And by civility, I mean like what it looks like to be a citizen under the authority of a government. And once again, right, the religious leaders expected the Messiah to come and to be the one who would drive out the Romans and establish a new kind of theocracy, like in the time of David. He would be this king under God, over God's people, Israel. So they, they thought he would kind of drive out Rome, and so they asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
And in their expectation of what the Messiah would be like, the Messiah would say, no way. Like, if the Romans have no right. Like, they have no authority here, so don't pay taxes to Caesar. Like, that's what they expected from the Messiah. So when Jesus says, yeah, like, go ahead. Like, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. But they're, they're totally cut off guard. Right? In the, the minds of the religious leaders, like, there's no way the Messiah would ever say that. Surely God's Messiah would never approve of anything a wicked, secular government like Rome would do. There's no way in their mind that Jesus could be the Messiah, because the Messiah would never say something like that. But again, because of the way Jesus articulated his argument, he had them look at the image of a coin in their pocket and see the image of seeds around it. We're told the end of the, we're told the end of this passage that they were unable to trap him in what he had said in public. And they were astonished by his answer, and they became silent. Again, they're left utterly speechless by Jesus. Jesus doesn't fit their expectation, their perception of the Messiah, and yet they can't refute his claims. And the final misunderstanding we've seen in Luke chapter 20 up to this point it's a misunderstanding of eternity. To the religious leaders, they come, and in this case, it's the Sadducees, and they come, and they, they come to Jesus, and they don't believe in the resurrection. And so they, again, believe the Messiah would come, and he'd be a military leader who installed an earthly government. And if there was any kind of eternal life, it would, it would be just like this life, but longer. But Jesus responds by telling them, actually, there is a resurrection. And that eternal life that comes in that resurrection is is fundamentally different than this life. And then at the passage ends in verse 40, we read this. And no one dared ask him any more questions. Each passage ends with people being paralyzed, unable to respond to Jesus. Because he didn't fit their expectations of the Messiah, and yet they couldn't refute him. So like all that's happened in Luke chapter 20 up until this point. Jesus has been asked question after question, constantly responded in a way that people cannot respond back to, and now in our passage this morning, Jesus' turn to ask a question. And this question that he's going to ask will, will highlight just how badly the religious leaders have misidentified the Messiah. So let's look at our passage together, starting in Luke chapter 20, verse 41. Here's Jesus' question. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the Son of David? That's a question. And the title, like, Son of David, was, was one of the Jews' favorite designations for the Messiah. And it's rooted in a passage in Psalm or 2 Samuel, in which God tells David that God is going to raise up an offspring after David who will sit on David's throne and establish that throne forever. So that's their picture of the Messiah. That's the fundamental Jewish belief about the Messiah. Someone who would be David's offspring, who would sit on David's throne, and that throne would be established forever. So that's why he's the, he's the son of David. He's one of David's offspring. But then Jesus goes on to point out that if the Messiah is just an earthly king like 
David is. And some of the other things that the Old Testament said about the Messiah don't make sense. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 42, David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy the footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So can't forget, like, Israel is a very patriarchal society, like, very much about respecting your elders. Like, it's a huge deal in that culture to respect your elders. And so it would be unheard of for, for a father to call his son Lord. Right? That's not how it works. It goes the other direction. And yet in Psalm 110, David, David wrote, The Lord, that is God, said to my Lord, that is the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Right? So David called the Messiah Lord, and yet the Messiah was to be one of David's sons. So Messiah is both David's son and David's Lord. And that doesn't make sense in the traditional understanding of the Messiah for the religious leaders. So Jesus' whole point here is that like, the things you thought you knew about the Messiah, right, some of the assumptions you had made about the Messiah are wrong. This is the case of like, messianic mistaken identity. What they perceive, what they expect the Messiah to be is wrong. They didn't have a category for the kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be. They had, they had preconceived notions about the Messiah that were, that were different than what Jesus was. And so when Jesus shows up and he doesn't fit their preconceived notions, they refuse to acknowledge him as the Messiah. In fact, they, they misunderstand him so badly, they'll eventually kill him. Like, here's where this matters for us. Like, it's all been leading to this morning. Like why it matters in our lives. Because like, by virtue of the fact that we live on this side of the cross, we live on this side of history, we know how the rest of Jesus' story plays out. We won't misidentify the Messiah the way the Jews did. Like we, we know that the Messiah is Jesus. Right, but importantly, just knowing that the Messiah is Jesus doesn't mean we won't misunderstand Jesus. Or assume things about Jesus that are not true. There are all kinds of, of pictures of Jesus out there, like all kinds of understandings and ideas of like who Jesus is in our culture. And not all of them are rooted in the Bible. Like you can go online, you can you can find pictures like this that conflict. Right? You have you have clearly like Jesus was a Democrat picture and Jesus was a Republican picture. Or you have these, right? You have Jesus was woke, and you have Jesus ain't woke, and like you, like people, like everyone can make Jesus in their own image, right? There's all kinds of conceptions of Jesus out there. Right? There's there's social justice Jesus, a Jesus who only cared about helping others and not about morality and truth, and there's there's genie in a bottle Jesus who's perfectly content to be ignored until he's needed, and you can just rub the lamp and ask him for a wish, and you get what you need. Right? There's, there's beneficent Jesus whose only purpose is to be a dispenser of good gifts. There's, there's the all-loving Jesus right? who, who just wants everyone to get along. Everyone's fine. Everything's happy. Like he's, 
he's summed up in bumper stickers like this one that you've all certainly seen. There's all kinds of pictures of Jesus out there. Just knowing Jesus is the Messiah doesn't guarantee that we have a right picture of who Jesus is. Even though we have the full New Testament, even though we have four full accounts of Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're still prone to make Jesus in our own image. To craft a Jesus who fits what we want him to be instead of what the Bible tells us about him. We're still prone to give Jesus a mistaken identity. Look, it's really easy, right, at least for me to pretend like this is a, a them problem, right? Like, like they mislabeled Jesus, they misunderstand Jesus, I got it all figured out. And yet, this is something where I think we're all susceptible to. I'm going to switch to the handheld mic. Hopefully this will be better. Right? So like, we all have these things. We all have a tendency, a, a, a leaning to make Jesus be like we want him to be instead of looking at the Bible to see what the Bible has to say about him. Part of that reason for that is that like, even in culture, when even when people who don't acknowledge that Jesus is God or that Jesus is the Messiah, like, Jesus still has a pretty good rep, even among non-Christians, right? People think he's a generally good guy who had good teachings, right? Like, he's still well-respected generally. Right? So if I can show that, that Jesus is on my side of an argument, right, that's kind of a, a spiritual trump card, if you need to make Jesus, if you can get, show that Jesus is on your side, then you win many arguments. Right? And so it's easy to make Jesus a, an advocate for your pet cause, whatever that may be. Right? It's easy to form Jesus in your own image instead of allowing yourself to be continually remade into the image of Christ. And so if like, you take nothing else this morning. You take nothing else from here today. Like, let it be this. Just be on guard against this tendency I think we all have to give in to preconceived notions about Jesus. Like, get your picture of Jesus and who he is from the Bible. And go back to it time and again. Study the life of Jesus. Study what the apostles said about him in the book that come after the new, after the gospel. But get your picture of Jesus from here and let that form you, not the other way around. Don't choose what you believe about things and then force Jesus into that box. Let yourself be transformed into the image of Christ that you learn about him from his word. In the 80s and 90s, there was, a, there was a group of scholars that met, and they, were, they called themselves the Jesus Seminar. And so they, they, their stated purpose was to go through the Gospels and to, to look at and determine the historicity of the deeds and the sayings of Jesus. And so they looked at each of the things that Jesus said and did, and they, they voted on whether they believed that Jesus actually did and said each one of those things. And so to do this, they had this 
like convoluted voting system that used different colored beads. And they had all these different criteria that had to fit their notion of Jesus, right? So for, for example, like one of their baseline assumptions in the process was that like anything supernatural couldn't have actually happened until they just tossed that out of hand. Which is just a faulty way to go about determining things. Like, but one critic of this whole endeavor wrote this. He said, these scholars were like people looking down a well to try to find Jesus. But they didn't realize that the quote-unquote Jesus they saw was really just a reflection of themselves from the water at the bottom of the well. And we're all prone to do that. We're all prone to, to look at Jesus and see Jesus to be an awful lot like us. Before, we need to be careful to let the Bible speak to who Jesus is and not our preconceived As you seek to like, form your image of Christ, right? like, constantly just go back to the Bible and learn about Him from those words. The danger is like, if you, you do it the other way around, right, you can get a twisted picture of who Jesus is. Right? That's certainly what happened with the religious leaders. Let's read the rest of our, our passage this morning, starting in verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and, they, and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men we punished most severely. To these these religious leaders, right, they were entirely wrong about the Messiah. And their mo- morality was also all out of whack. And yet that didn't stop them from, from being all about outward shows of spirituality. And through their deeds and their, through their dress and their job titles, they had gained influence and respect. They got important seats in the synagogue. They got important seats at, at parties. And they would pray these long-winded, showy prayers in order to to sound good and holy and righteous. They love to pray and sound all fancy. I'm currently reading this book called The Brothers K by, by David James Duncan. And in that book, the main character is a boy named Kincaid, and his dad's a baseball player, and his mom's a very like, fundamentalist Seventh-day Adventist, and he's kind of wrestling with the conflict between the two. And at one point, he like really needs help with something. So he goes to prayer. This is what he says about prayer. He says that I'd, I'd had mixed luck with prayer lately and wasn't all that high on it, but this time I gave it my very best shot. Keeping my eyes squeezed shut, calling Jesus thee instead of you, and sticking F's on the end of words like beggeth and beseecheth, just like the elders did at church. That's what the religious leaders were doing, right? They were, they were adding S to the end of words so they sounded all fancy. They were preach, praying these long-winded prayers so they would look more spiritual than they really were. 
They're all about looking holy, but not living holy. And, and Jesus has no time for it. Look again at that last sentence. These men we punished most severely. And the reason that we punish most severely is that their outward spirituality did not impact their actions towards others. They devour widows' houses. They, they mistreat and take advantage of the neediest member of society. And then they had the audacity to show up and make lengthy prayers and sound all spiritual. That kind of hypocrisy, more than anything else, ignites the wrath of Jesus. So, like, I don't know where each of you is at this morning. But if possible, there's some of you here who show up and, like, you look righteous from the outside. I could look at you or anyone else here could look at you and think you got, you're living a good Christian life. But inside, you know right, like you're, you're not living the life that God has called you to live. That you're using your outward righteousness, your outward holy lookingness to, to cover up and excuse deep sin and misbehavior. Look, if that's you this morning... I just urge you to learn from these religious leaders. Like, let that last sentence hit you. That that kind of hypocrisy leads to severe punishment. Just take that to heart. And like the good news, the, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that even if that's been you for a long time, you're not without hope. There is there is forgiveness for even the most egregious sins, even the most egregious hypocrisy. There's still forgiveness to be found through Jesus. So if that's you this morning, that you've been hiding sin and using an outward appearance of holiness to cover up sin, then I would just urge you to repent and run to Jesus. It's the Messiah, right? The the real Messiah, not the one made in our image, but the, the real Messiah, Jesus. Like he, he went to the cross for your sin, for your hypocrisy, for your misdeeds, for your false holiness, for all of it. Like He went to the cross. So whatever you may be wrestling with this morning, like repent. Know that His death on the cross was sufficient to cover all those sins. If you're here and you've, you've never trusted Jesus, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then I would invite you and urge you to do that. And if you, you have questions about what that looks like, then I would be more than happy to talk to you about that. But like, sometimes it's really easy to, to think that like, remembering what Jesus did is helpful at the very beginning of your Christian walk, right? That he, he's the way in the door, as it were. Right? But then we feel like we have to work on our own power to live the life that he called us to live and that when we fall into a pattern of sin we can feel hopeless so if you're here and you've placed your faith in Jesus a long time ago but you've lately found yourself living in sin living 
a way that you know that's not honoring to God. The good news of the gospel, there is still hope. There is still hope. There is still redemption. There is still forgiveness for you in Christ. Whether you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, or you're here and you've been trusting Jesus for a long time, would this morning just serve to remind us of the beauty of what Jesus did for us on the cross? Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. We pray that we would continually learn more about who Jesus is. We continually be more and more amazed by what an amazing Savior Jesus is. And that we would constantly be more and more transformed into the image of Jesus. That our lives would be about not using Jesus to get our way, but that our lives would be about obedience and honoring Jesus. Would you show us where we're guilty of misunderstanding who Jesus is, would you show us daily a clearer and clearer picture of our Savior? And that clearer and clearer picture, would it move us to worship? Would it move us to bringing you glory? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You go from here, you go amazed by what an amazing Savior Jesus is, that He is the long-promised Messiah. Would you go with your inward heart and your inward actions a proper reflection of your outward obedience? You are dismissed.